Hi there, how are you? Welcome along to the Digital Culture Ideas Show. This is the show where we discuss the impact of technology on culture and people and how it's significantly shaping the way we think, interact, behave and communicate. In short, this is a show about technology and people. Hi there. Throughout my career, I've had the great opportunity to work with some amazing CEOs. And today I'd like to introduce you to one of my favorites, Ed Sims, president and CEO of WestJet. Ed's an aviation and tourism professional, and he's got a track record of delivering really strong results. He's done that in a number of countries from Europe to Australia, New Zealand, and North American markets. He's done that in senior commercial as well as operational positions within companies such as TUI, Thomas Cook, Virgin Groups, Air New Zealand, and Airways, New Zealand's air navigation service provider. He joined WestJet in 2017 and became president and CEO in 2018. He took the company from its first quarterly loss in 52 consecutive quarters in quarter two to a position of sustained and significant profitability. He continues to spearhead WestJet's evolution from a point-to-point low-cost carrier to a global airline network with the arrival of the 787 Dreamliners and the introduction of business cabin and premium services. He's led the organization through the largest private equity deal in aviation history with the purchase of WestJet Bionics. And Ed would put that down to his amazing WestJeters. He absolutely has faith in their ability to deliver and um, also he puts the operational and safety performance firmly in their hands as well. During our time together, Ed and I talk about what it takes to be a CEO. He compares it to being like an air traffic controller, directing traffic and keeping the organization and its people safe from harm. I love that analogy. He also talks about the benefits of being a generalist. So not going too deep in any one particular area, but having a period of time where you sample um, different activities and different operational roles so that you get that ability to learn what your own ability and interests are. And again, that really appeals to me because often what I talk about is not being one thing, but being many things. And um, there's benefits in doing that because you learn what you're good at. He talked about having active mentors in his life and also being able to scenario plan for the downside, that it's quite easy to think of the upside in situations, but harder to plan for the downside. And he certainly has put that into practice with the current pandemic where um, he has been scenario planning and dealing with the current crisis using crisis management techniques. He also talked about the firm importance of ongoing communication during these times of change and during crises. Um, Not just one way though, two way. So you've got to be able to create that conversation with your people, but also your customers and then obviously the public as well. Without further ado, I'm excited to bring Ed Sims onto today's Digital Culture Ideas show. Ed, how are you? I'm pretty good, Hilary. I've had a pretty tiring six months, but you know, all things considered, loving life in Canada, missing New Zealand, but um, just getting on with a pretty big job in hand. Absolutely. Um, I, I was reflecting on when I actually met you, and I think it was way back in uh, 2013 when you were the CEO of Airways, which just seems like a lifetime ago, probably. Um, and I just want to thank you because you were always incredibly supportive of me and, and gave me lots of opportunities at Airways. So first of all, thank you for that. Um, 
And I, I remember this one conversation we had and you were, were saying to me, well, you know, why not the CEO job? Why not think about that? And I was like, what? Are you kidding? No, that's that's crazy. And then you said, um, well, it's the top job, but it's not a job that you do on your own. And there's something about that that really struck with me that actually everyone in that kind of top team has a different role that they need to play. And um, reflecting on your experiences then, what what is the role of the CEO in your own words? And do you have any advice for people aspiring to be CEOs? Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot to unpack uh, in that question. Firstly, you know, thinking back on you and I working together back in Airways, hmm. uh, anything that, that you earned, anything that you were qualified for, you did by yourself. And I think that's hmm. the really important aspect, I think, you know, for you to reflect on that. You know, people can influence you and people can help you and they can give you guidance along the way, but it's down to an inner core of, of resilience and determination that, that, that drives that outcome. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment. I'm not a great business book reader, but I'm reading a book at the moment called The Generalist by a guy called David Epstein. And it's one of those books that doesn't uh, turn the light bulb on, but it reminds you what the light bulb was shining on in the first place. And I'm a, I'm a great believer in generalists. I'm a great believer mm. that uh, your, effectively your breadth needs to be greater than your technical depth when you're building a career. And I think, you know, I've had the great good fortune uh, in my career that people back me to move from an operational world where I started mm. into a commercial world and then from a commercial world back into an operational world. And I've been able to move relatively easily uh, between the two just by being very curious and asking a lot of questions. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's a combination of the judgment of assessing when you have enough level of confidence in a role to say, that's enough. Uh, that could be two years, three years, four years, but it's enough to give me a confidence to say, I know how a financial person thinks. I know how a human resources professional thinks. I know mm. how a operational person thinks and now you know provided that the person who works above me has sufficient confidence they're going to move me on or i'm going to recommend that i should be moved on and i always encourage people to think that careers are never a ladder they're a they're a lattice work and yes. the way you climb up a lattice work is more often side to side than it is pure up and very often the way of moving side to side is just looking around you know, I can see it now in my position and I didn't see it as clearly uh, when I was in uh, middle management roles, but it's the person who's always got the hand up. It's the person who always looks like they're making more time to create uh, greater capability. And it's the person who's always saying, I, I can take that off your plate. How can I help you? And those people make a lasting impression uh, on you and make a lasting impression for themselves by their attitude and by their capacity to take on more work. And I guess as I've worked in more senior positions, uh, that ability to offer capacity becomes every bit as important as capability. So you kind of know a bit about people's technical proficiency. What you don't know is their ability to take on extra work and extra accountability. And then, of course, when things go wrong, it's those people mm -hmm. who say, I played my part in that and that was my responsibility versus those people yeah. who are saying, I had nothing to do with it. So it's a very long answer to a, very, to a short question. But, you know, I think people, particularly in this environment, have to demonstrate flexibility, resilience, 
humility, accountability, all of those great kind of traditional values. But I really do believe more than I've ever believed that the future belongs to the generalist uh, rather than to the functional specialist. Uh, so for people who are spending too long flexing the same technical muscle, uh, it's really is time to try and, and find another muscle. That's interesting. And it, um, that does make a lot of sense. And I guess if I've thought about it, um, you know, I have thought, oh, you know, CFO roles, you know, they make a you know great kind of entrance into CEOs or operational roles. But I think you're right. It is a lot broader than that. And um, yeah, that diversity of experience is, is the key thing, which I'm hearing from you there as well. Yeah, and people have got to fight imposter syndrome. You know, I, yes. I, I spent far too long thinking <clears throat> that, given that I didn't traditionally come up through a financial model, that I was an imposter when I came to talk about balance sheets or cash reserves or liquidity or, uh, you know, any of the other terminology that becomes the mainstay of, of operating in finance. But it's, it's a fundamental understanding of the difference between profit and loss and uh, cost and revenue. And, and how you widen the gap between the two. So it's just in any work discipline, the fundamental truths always prevail and not feeling inadequate because you didn't get the letters or the qualifications in that particular discipline. It doesn't for a second mean you're not capable of managing that discipline. Mm, yeah, you can learn anything as well. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. Thank you. Um, I've sort of recently started out a governance career as well. And I've was um I've been placed on the board of Regenerate Christchurch and that's been a really great experience for me getting yeah. into that. It's kind of a long game I'm playing, if that makes yeah. sense. I don't think you can just decide one day, oh, I'm going to do governance now. <laughs> You've got to build that skill set. And it's a really interesting relationship that the, the board has with the CEO. I mean, I've seen it with, with you and the board of Airways, and now I'm sort of seeing it from the other side with a CEO kind of, you know, interacting with a board and you know, what do you think are some of the ingredients that make that relationship a really successful one? Because it's a quite a, an important one to get right, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great question. I tend to, if I think of two of the great board directors uh, I've worked with, one who'll be very familiar to your viewers in New Zealand, one less so, but I'll, I'll concentrate on, on him more recently, an older and very experienced former um, head of PwC in Canada. He's a gentleman by the name of Hugh Bolton. And uh, he was a fantastic mentor for me in governance because he would normally be the first at a board meeting to say, this is management's issue to resolve, it's not the board's issue. Mm. And he had this great acronym that you may have heard of before called NIFO, and he used to regularly repeat NIFO, which was basically nose in, fingers out. So yes. always put yeah, your nose yeah. in, ask lots of demanding questions, don't be frightened of putting people on the spot but then back out and don't try and interfere and don't try and do the job yourself. And uh, he was a great conscience because a number of the board were former uh, executives of the airline, uh, of the mm. organization, including the chair. We had a founder chair who finds it extraordinarily difficult, even to this day, he hasn't been chair of the organization now for almost 12 months, and finds it extraordinarily difficult not to ring me up every day and give me good advice uh, on, <laughs> yes. on how, uh, how the business should be run. But to have someone like Hugh was uh, invaluable. So I often think about NIFO and I often think about balancing that, that governance of providing lateral experience from other environments without necessarily saying this is going to work in your environment, particularly in an industry you don't know. But the other 
incredible mentor that I was lucky to have uh, when I spent 10 years with Air New Zealand uh, was a guy called Ken Douglas, uh, who in, in various other guises in New Zealand was known as Red Ken. He was uh, uh, very actively involved in the Communist Party and very actively involved in trade union movements. Okay. And uh, I've spent a lot of my time in the last 20 years in uh, union negotiations and everything I learned about collective bargaining I learned from Ken. And the lesson he gave me was you cannot be a successful board director, you cannot operate in governance perspective unless you are prepared to spend time in somebody else's shoes. Mm. And Ken and I would spend hours, believe it or not, simulating union negotiations uh, where he would be the union leader and I would be the, the, the company stooge or the, the lead negotiator from the company side. And he would tell me all the things that uh, I was, he would call effectively BS on a lot of the things that I was saying. <laughs> and I found that that kind Couldn't of role, it, it was mentor, it was coach, it was buddy, it was uh, simulated training. Um, it was just mm. exceptionally valuable to have somebody from outside of my sphere, outside of the aviation industry, saying, unless you are prepared to sit the other side of, the, of a negotiating table, you shouldn't be in the negotiating room. And uh, that's a lesson that I've never forgotten, both in terms of both the CEO role, but also in my experience in times uh, playing mm. governance roles and in, in governance roles, uh, particularly in New Zealand, where you have to fight that temptation to try and do somebody's job for you. And of mm. course, the other great lesson I learned from Airways New Zealand is that being the chief exec is, is just being the lead air traffic controller. You are there to, to distribute the traffic and to evenly space the traffic around you. So when the board, we went through a long and very complex and very arduous privatization last year. And we went through an extraordinary due diligence process in the build up to the privatization that uh, seemed to take no time at all. And then the privatization was immensely complex. It's the largest single uh, private transaction in aviation history. It was a five and a half billion transaction that we completed on December the 13th. Wow. And if I had tried to manage that, just in the due diligence phase that took nine weeks, we exchanged 77,500 documents. If I had tried to be the source of those documents, I would have killed myself. Yeah, I had to realize very early on, I was the air traffic controller and I was the person dispersing the responsibility and then dispersing the information back in response to those questions. And that creates, I think, a very special relationship, particularly between the chair of the board and the chief executive, but also other board directors and the chief executive. And it really is my role in conjunction with the board to make sure that we uh, disperse accountability and responsibility and make sure we give adequate answers uh, in response to really good searching questions. Yes, yeah. Wow, that's a um, the the investment of some of your your mentors that they've actually had with you, like really active investment in your professional development, has um, been fantastic. And and that's really good advice around having to, you know, get the work done through other people. Otherwise, you're just going to break yourself in the process, yeah. of course. And uh, you know, if we kind of move on to to chat through a bit about the aviation industry and things like that, so. Obviously, the, the pandemic has happened and uh, planes stopped flying and then now it's just a lot have stopped flying. And wow, Black Swan event, no one really could have predicted this was going to happen this year. And all of a sudden, all the plans that all the businesses had have needed to change. 
And, you know, you've got a, a really good record of coping well with change in organisations. And I say that because it's a really strong thread of your, your career experiences. So what have you learned about coping with, with this crisis in particular? Yeah, I think what I've got is a really good track record of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> All the right place, I think. <laughs> so I've ended up. Yeah, for, for better, for worse, being characterized as the turnaround guy, you know, someone described me recently as the Lee Iacocca of the airline industry, which I'm not <laughs> sure is a reputation I really wanted. You know, I kind of, I've worked through the Gulf War, 9-11, uh, SARS, MERS, swine flu, wow. GFC, uh, there's been, latterly been an economic downturn here in Alberta. So uh, mm. you do, you learn all about risk management. Now, this is something that's very close mm. to your heart, I know, yes. from, from a lot of really positive experience. But it's staggering still to me how few organizations spend enough time modeling downside. Everybody loves upside modeling and says, what is the opportunity and how, you know, how nimble can we be to take advantage of the opportunity? Very few, in my experience, organizations spend enough time anticipating what does a low look like and what are several levels below that low look like. So I would be disingenuous if I said uh, that WestJet or the Canadian aviation industry was prepared for this pandemic. What I would mm. say is uh, the mantra that I've introduced to WestJet, and I think in a large part came from my time with Airways New Zealand, is structure, process, discipline. Plan mm. on a minimum of a five-year basis. And if you can, plan on the useful life of your assets. So our aircraft will typically last about 20 years. And if you can plan out 20 years basis, then you do model cycles because aviation, just those uh, negative influences that I just outlined, they tend to happen in yes. a 10 year cycle. Uh, and look, at, you know, it may well be that the, the decade that we're now in the 20s will be far more like the first decade of the new millennium than the most recent decade. The most recent decade was almost marked by unparalleled upside. Yeah. Yes, of course, there yeah. were terrible disasters in New Zealand, you know, coming up for the anniversary of the, the first Christchurch earthquake, uh, Pike River, terrible things happened. Um, but in a global aviation terms, this was an extraordinary period of success. Yes. And I think, you know, what's been really helpful in this pandemic is anticipating that cycles will come back, knowing the muscle to flex, and coming back to an earlier discussion knowing that you can't, that you have to delegate. So almost on, on day one, I mean, I, I still remember vividly the day I first realized how badly the pandemic was going to hit. It was Sunday afternoon, February 29th. And uh, on a Sunday afternoon, I tend to have a look at our booking records and I tend to see how well, you know, the, the next day, the next week uh, is looking. And I suddenly saw for the first time net cancellations outstripping net new bookings. And I, I just immediately assumed our systems had gone down. I immediately assumed there was a massive IT The data must be wrong. <laughs> the data must be wrong. We must have had a three or four hour hiatus when there was no data coming through. What was extraordinary was we stayed in that net red position for 72 days consecutively. Now, if yeah. you didn't model downside, you'd lose your mind uh, because that's a kind of, you know, two or three hour glitch that you think, oh, I can't wait till the system's back up again. When that continues day in, day out, night, day, weekend, weekday, over a sustained period of time, uh, it can become very, very overwhelming. So I immediately assigned all delegated responsibility to what I called an instant command center, an, an ICC, 
okay. that had representatives of about 20 to 24 different parts of the business. And they would meet in a, in a sit rep situation twice a day when we first started, nine o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the afternoon. And they would make all the decisions about running the business. So we made a whole series wow. of rapid fire decisions. We, we grounded 150 aircraft in the space of 24 hours. Uh, we, we pulled out of the USA. We flew to 28 ports in the US. We canceled all of our US flying three days before the Canadian government and the US government closed their mutual border. Uh, within the space of a week, we had stood down 10,500 employees. Mm. Um, so because we were making decisions through an incident command center, of which I was a participant, but I was only a participant. I was by no means the final voice. Gosh. We were making incredible real-time decisions around people's lives, their livelihoods, their travel patterns, uh, policy decisions, liaising with federal government, liaising with provincial government. And we were able to move at an incredible pace because we had that support structure behind us. And since then, now we're on um, Instant Command Center number 84. And since that time, I also structured a, at the time, a weekly webinar, which was essentially an address to mm. all West Jetters so that they could hear me, uh, update them on the state of the play, yes. and that they could then ask open questions and answers. And we've kept that going. And we've kept the ICC going. And, you know, the, the next set of challenges, at what stage do you then say that discipline was right for the early stage of the pandemic, and yes. now we need uh, a, a different set of disciplines? We divided the pandemic up into three phases. The first phase was all about um, heading at full pelt down a steep valley side. And we call that our liquidity or a cash reserve phase where we only had one focus, which was yeah. maintaining our cash reserves and minimizing cash burn. The second yes. phase we talked about as our stabilization or kind of semi-hibernation, where you get to a stable schedule, you, you maintain that cash discipline and you just hold steady and you, you, know, you have to go through reorganization, you have to go through the culture change we're in that phase now, mm. and what we are obviously trying to do now is make sure that we've got enough muscle memory for the recovery and making sure that when you see those early signs of recovery, you can move fast enough, you can redeploy, you can recall, you can bring people back in, but you don't do those decisions so fast that you undo the, the good decisions you made in the first phase. Yes. So, yeah. you know, I think having... Uh, an instant command center, having a really strong team of executives, having a great relationship with the board to constantly pressure check where you are and, and you know, make sure that you always have somebody challenging and questioning your decisions according to which phase you think you're in and being able to explain uh, where you are at any one of those phases through that delegated responsibility, through completely tr uh, transparent communication like the webinars. But, you know, it also comes back to the people you choose to surround yourself with. And mm. I've always had a, a phrase of the sort of people that I appoint for times like this, which is battle scarred but still smiling. So the sort of people who have weathered, you know, 9-11 or everything that's happened since, but have the ability still to retain a sense of humor and retain a sense of perspective on a crisis. And, you know, here we are, we're six months on. Uh, mm. I don't think any of us thought when we went into it 
uh, that it could have done the damage that it's done, that it could have been as long lasting, it could have been as widespread. And none of us know whether it's another six months, 12, 18 months. What we do know is that the full impact of the pandemic and the recession that will follow will almost certainly be with us for another two to three years. And, you know, if we're not still smiling and we're not showing our scars, then we will find it overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you're right. Like, uh, it's it's very uncertain times. It's so hard to predict what's happening. But it does sound like you're actually painting out a picture for people as well in terms of those phases, which is really useful, I think, to know and for, if I was a staff member. And, um, and so I want to touch on that as well. You mentioned the webinars you're doing for staff. Yes. Um, but I, I also noticed, like, you quite bravely also went out on social media with messages for staff as well, plus the public. And, you know, you you weren't delivering great messages. <laughs> it was about, you know, what the organisation was going through and that, you know, jobs were going to have to um, go and, you know, voluntary redundancies and, and all of that, which so many organisations have done. Except you chose to do it online and very publicly. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at the comments on on the different posts that you made, there's a, an, a surprising amount of really positive comments from from your Westjetters, um, you know, saying how much they love the organisation and they've really enjoyed it and we'll get through this. And, and I guess that's, you know, because how you put those messages out, it did have that real vein of optimism and, um, you know, support for people as well. I mean, yes, there were, you know, the inevitable kind of negative messages as well, but I'm on the, I think pretty overwhelmingly positive the response you've, you've had from your people. So can you tell me, like, how did you go about making that potentially risky, quite maybe even vulnerable decision to, to communicate in that way? Yeah, it, 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 it is, it's not without risk. I mean, I think we all have a social media channel that's our thing. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Twitter, but I, I, I like LinkedIn. And I mm. like the sense of dialogue, whether it's through private messaging, public messaging, public messages of support. And, you know, I chose to make a lot of statements over LinkedIn as a way of explaining, as you say, sometimes very difficult decisions for our guests, as well as difficult decisions for our people. So, you know, we took a decision early on that we were not going to give cash refunds when people were cancelling their trips. Mm. It's hugely yeah. controversial because everybody's going through financial hardship and we weren't in a position to give cash back. We reached a compromise where we'd offer credits over 24 months, which I, but it was a compromise and it wasn't a situation that suited a lot of people. We took a decision relatively early on that we were going to protect middle seats when we had relatively low load factors mm -hmm. in the aircrafts. And then yep. we took that, we, we changed that decision. We said we now have mandatory masks on all flights. We have mandatory health checks before everybody boards. We've spent millions on personal protective gear uh, to make sure that guests and our uh, uh, our own staff are safe. Mm. So I think, you know, you have to be very authentic in your communication. I try to write in the way that I speak. So I try yes. to be very direct. I, I have no time for management speak or corporate speak. Uh, I try not to, I don't believe in using sentences that other people don't understand. I don't see much value in that. So I've, <laughs> yeah. I've always tried to relate um, to uh, both guests and WestJetters as if I'm serving them on a flight. 
So on every flight that I have operated since my time with WestJet, I've operated as a flight attendant. I've been in the galley. <laughs> I put on an apron. I, I serve food. And, and I love it That's because cool. it gets you into really good conversations with cabin crew and it gets you into great conversations with, uh, with your guests. Yes. So when I, when I came to post on LinkedIn, they were quite personal uh, outpourings. And one of the extraordinary things about this organization, we had 14,000 staff. So notwithstanding the 14,000, you can get to know those people really well when you work alongside them. So if you're loading bags on a day in Calgary when it's minus 30 outside, or if you're on a flight that's you know, got a 100% load factor and you're up against turbulence, you get to know people in a very different mm. environment than if you're sitting in an office sending them emails. So you get to know people at a personal level, and the very least you can do with them is communicate um, to them. Yeah. Uh, and with them on a, on a very personal level. And, and like you, you know, I, I was just so blown away when we were making really, really tough decisions about furloughing staff, laying staff off permanently, um, giving staff a very indefinite time when they may be recalled, if they were going to be recalled at all. Part of two things I think helped in that regard, one that it's happened to me twice in my career, once in the UK and once in Australia, I've been laid off as a, as a result of company collapse. And mm -hmm. in both instances, the company's collapsed completely, 100%, not a single job left. So very early on, when I came to analyzing how many people we were going to have to lay off, I told our management teams, focus on the jobs you save. If you focus on the jobs you're losing, mm -hmm. you're going to lose yourself in the enormity of what I'm asking you to do. But if you think everything I'm doing is to save Hillary's job or to save Ed's job or to save Christia's job, whoever's job it is, that is a really positive motivator. So every time mm. that I've been posting, I've been thinking about the jobs that we save uh, as well as the jobs we lose. And then when you think about the jobs you lose, how quickly can I make decisions that bring that person back into the company? Yes. Can't give them guarantees. It could be 10 years. But, you know, how can we set a platform that keeps WestJet's critical purpose alive for when people are ready to come back to work? You know, we are the second largest airline in the second largest country in the world. There is no question mm. that Canada needs WestJet and needs vibrant competition to, to survive and to keep its economic growth engine, to keep GDP alive and well. And I keep reminding our people that we serve an extraordinarily important purpose through re repatriation flights, through shifting Absolutely. essential workers around the country. Aviation is a noble purpose. And sooner or later, demand and will come back with reassurance about contact tracing, about testing, and ultimately about vaccines. And when that demand comes back and when confidence comes back in, that will be the time that I will again use LinkedIn or other forms of social media to reach out to those people saying, your time is coming, I'm calling you, you need to come back in. I, I saw you post recently, you were mentioning the testing and, and things like that. So I saw a post where you know WestJet is with other aviation um, organizations trying to lead that biosafety standards piece. Yeah. Um, I think you call it like a flight plan for flight navigating plan. COVID-19. COVID um, so there's some real kind of thought leadership coming out of the organization there or coordination because the aviation sector is global, isn't it? So you can't can't do it in your own bubble. You've got to operate 
within that whole system. Um, so yeah, some good thought leadership coming out of the, the airline there as well. Yeah, sometimes you've got to hold your breath and work with your competitor, and that doesn't sit naturally <laughs> with me. I'm an incredibly competitive person, as you know. So kind of reaching out and saying, we've got to do this collaboratively, uh, sometimes goes against the grain, but, you know, it's it's for a, a greater good, and, and the greater good is getting 90 million Canadians flying again. Absolutely, absolutely. And then speaking of getting flying again, um, I mean, I've had, got lots of friends in aviation who've been affected by this as well, both through um, working at Airways, but then also I was in the Royal New Zealand Air Force and mm. um, I've got family members who are airline pilots and things like that. And it's it's been a pretty pretty tough time for them. And uh, so I've, the, this question is more about like, how do you see things recovering like what's your predictions for the aviation industry over the next i don't know what even what the right time period is three five ten years um what, what is there anything you see in terms of how it might recover yeah again my forecast is uh, is only useful for one purpose which is it'll be proven wrong yes. um but if i take kind of a, a short medium term perspective on it in the short term uh, I think there will be, I mean, it's a great time to be a traveler, to be honest. There's going to be a lot of stimulation through low fares. So I mm. think it will come back in at the lower fare end of the market. I think it will also start at the at the leisure end and, you know, uh, a mixture of uh, low point-to-point airfares um, combined with, you know, people who finally say, I've had enough of uh, level two, three, four, I've had enough of lockdown, I've just got to go somewhere. Yeah. And feel some sand between my toes and there's a lot totally. of people sinking along those lines i think that the last stages that will come back frankly will be ultra long haul and mm. will be corporate and i think you know corporates like ourselves like cordia like airways like uh, westjet are getting so used to the facility of microsoft teams and zoom um that i think the whole concept of internal uh, meetings and internal get-togethers could be lost forever I think there will always be external supplier and partnership meetings that can only be conducted face to face. But yeah. I do think the corporate market is going to take much, much longer to recover. When the aviation market does recover, there's a number of really valuable lessons for us. Uh, and one of which is just getting rid of uh, intermediary touch points. Uh, we still have far too much paper in the industry and we still have far <laughs> too much uh, what I would call second or third generation technology. Uh, so moving uh, as much of that interaction onto being pure app-based or even better onto artificial intelligence base, uh, harnessing effective robotics into repeated uh, activities. Uh, one of my surprises moving from New Zealand to uh, Canada, frankly, has been that Canada is a relatively late adopter. Uh, okay. You know, for, for you Kiwis, you, you're so quick to adopt new technology and bring new technology into the workplace because it's a relatively smaller workplace. Uh, Canada is much more tightly regulated. Uh, there are all kinds of privacy and security laws that get in the way of harnessing artificial intelligence. And there's an innate caution. And, you know, I've, I'm now coming up for my fourth winter in Canada. I can understand some of that caution because when you travel through the middle of a Canadian winter, uh, you actually know the meaning of minus 30 and you know the meaning of disruption. Mm. And we, we get a lot of snow, we get a lot of ice, you get a lot of really extreme uh, conditions here. So people tend to get to airports early, they check in early, and then they stay by the gate because they're frightened of getting bumped. 
and the plane <laughs> getting offloaded. And, uh, you know, I hadn't seen a paper boarding pass in about six years till I came to Canada. And then I got to Canada <laughs> and everyone was using a paper boarding pass. But I, I'm kind of <laughs> getting distracted. You know, I think what we will see, and I think you'll see it in areas like um, in-flight, where I think everything will be governed by, uh, by Bluetooth or by tiles. So nobody will be touching a screen. Uh, nobody will yeah. be uh, ordering food other than by, by pre-order methodology. And, you know, I think there's a danger that it becomes so high tech that you lose the ability to be able to have conversations and interact on board. But I suspect mm. the, the great airlines, and we will be one of these, will combine really strong personalities of our, our, our guest-facing staff with, with leading edge technology. Uh, and I think that's going to be a great combination. I mean, I saw it in check-in. You know, I started life as a check-in agent. And your first conversation with a check-in agent was almost always, I'm sorry about the long queue that you've just been mm. in. And kiosks changed that conversation to saying, where are you traveling today? And that's the next, gen the next generation on that we need to just change that conversation and use technology to stop apologizing uh, for queue times in contact centers or at airports and use the technology in order that we can use our personalities to best affect in other aspects of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. To really give people that um, WestJet experience or yeah. Cordier experience as we call it. Yeah. Um, so following on that technology theme, so one of the, the, the theses of the show is all about digital culture ideas. Um, that, you know, the fact that our lives are getting completely intertwined with technology. Uh, it's going to be in every industry, every career, every role. And it's um, also affecting, I think, how we lead people as well. Um, you know, it, it means that we have to be more um, transparent and collaborative as we're leading people because technology is allowing more of that. How do you see technology changing the way you lead? We talked about it some of it earlier. Um, we can spend less time being physically alongside mm. somebody. You know, I, I converted, we used to do regular, what we call town halls where we'd had two or 300 people yes. in the room. I can yep. now reach five or six times as many people as I can physically get into a town hall uh, yes. via, via a webinar. And then of course that webinar then exists as a permanent record. People download it. I find with my watch staff. Watch it later. Webinars, yep. Yeah, twice as many people download and watch later as, as watch it live at the time. And I'm, you know, I'm really happy either way. Hopefully the, the, the experience is, is, no, is not reduced. So I think it really is a question of building these aspects in to the way that you structure your working life. And I've been doing quite a lot of work with one of the big four consulting firms with Deloitte about how you structure the future of work. And if I think about the way we structured the future of work in the past, you've structured it by finance, by, uh, by operations, by, by HR, and working with Deloitte, they're, they're helping me structure the way I think of my working life into uh, a war room, which is you know, typically a kind of grassroots responsive methodology, a library, which is my long-term strategic planning capability, the cafe where I collaborate. So almost translating your working yeah. day into a kind of physical manifestation and thinking that each mode is quite a different thinking mode. And I think that one of the myths about the enhancement of technology into the working mode is that it replaces some of that thinking. All it's yeah. there to do is augment and enhance yeah. your thinking capability, but it means you've got to be a lot more deliberate about the thinking style that you're applying to a particular problem or a particular challenge. 
and I find that hugely exciting because then uh, AI can can take away everything else from me. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. That model you talked about in terms of the the library and the cafe and the war room. I look forward. Will there be some literature on this at some stage? <laughs> that it will be. I want to read some more about that. I've probably just given away their IP. They'll probably kill me. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I think they've published. You know, I think they've published a number of studies uh, along those lines. But they've been great to work with because you know it's it's very eye-opening in terms of how you. And I think particularly, you know, we've been applying it post-pandemic because mm. the worst thing you can do is take the bad habits that you just learned to live with, like you know, terrible wallpaper in your house from the old and yeah, you just reality into the there. new and Exactly, and you take it into this new environment. It's completely inappropriate. So taking the opportunity to say, don't just think about, you know, the, the future of work is not about who works from home and who works in an office. The future no. of work is all about how you think. Mm. Oh, I love that. love that. Um, so coming back to social media. So mm. you've been on LinkedIn, I, I think it's for at least eight years. So you yeah. must have been a fairly early adopter. Um, and correct me if that's not quite right, but, um, you know, so you clearly recognize it's a really good platform for discussions and conversations and, you know, putting messages out. And recently, you're invited to be a LinkedIn influencer, which is, I, I'm, I'm very, that's so amazing. And I'm not sure if, uh, you know, our listeners sort of know exactly what that is, but it is a big deal. Um, it's a diverse group of business, political, and thought leaders, comprised about um, 500 people. So it's actually a pretty small group, I think, if you think about mm. that globally. And, you know, we have uh, Jacinda Ardern on there, but also people like Melinda Gates and Justin Trudeau, kind of just to name a few. And, you know, so the point of it is that you, you're there to kind of share your perspectives on business, leadership, technology, culture, you know, among whatever um, other relevant topics are. So, wow, what, what did you think when you got that <laughs> invite? And what does that mean to you? Like, <laughs> Yeah, my first thought was my kids are going to find me even more ridiculous than they used to find me. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the idea of your father being on social media is just instant death. But thank God they realized it wasn't, you know, Instagram or TikTok. So that made them feel slightly better. Yes, um, yeah. You know, I think there's a couple of uh, elements that probably helped along the way uh, one is and it sounds so self-explanatory you've got to have something interesting to say mm. and I've seen a lot of my contemporaries have their content curated so yes. they'll have it written by their communications department yes. they'll have it written by yep. somebody else and you always know I mean the sniff test never lets you down you know when somebody's consciously selling um, their product or selling something um generally people switch off and they stop reading. Yeah, uh, It is incredibly important, and I think never more important now for CEOs, for board directors, for leaders of organizations to have opinions and not to mm. be frightened of sharing opinions. And so, you know, in, in many of my LinkedIn posts and, and particularly in a lot of my internal communication, I've talked about issues that are well outside uh, aviation, nothing to do with the operation of a successful operation of, a, of, a, of an aircraft, uh, but all to do with trust, uh, all to do with respect. Um, they could be about Black Lives Matter. They could mm. be about the Me Too movement. Um, they could be uh, about 
pride and, and our association with LGBTQ. Um, they could be about indigenous issues. And, you know, in my short time in Canada, I've tried to replicate a lot of the great work uh, that New Zealand and Airways and others have done with the Maori population to ensure that First Nations with a very, very different history uh, have a, a similar bridge to education and employment uh, within WestJet. But whatever the issue, and it doesn't really matter, and I try not to, to display a, a, any particular political or partisan stance, it's just important to have an opinion. And people expect leaders to have an opinion. Uh, people are obviously frustrated in some regards with the way that politicians have manned the pandemic uh, in any country that you're in. So they look to business leaders to say, what are you pointing towards? What are you advocating uh, that might give me a different uh, train of thought? And you're, you were so right in your early observation that you have to make yourself vulnerable because so much of social media is an echo chamber. It's not a, it's not a learning yep. environment. And people only go on, you know, if you look at something like Reddit, they only go on to Reddit to hear what they already believed and they'd already been groomed uh, to be uh, having that content curated to them. So when you post a, a view, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of discussion last year about uh, provincial politics within Canada relative to federal politics. And I posted views and, and you, get, you get a pretty strong reaction from people pretty quickly. Um, and it's, it's not so much about trying to alienate or ostracize people. It's more simply saying it comes with the territory and there is an expectation, particularly from 14,000 people to whom uh, they have a very strong alliance to the organization, allegiance to the organization. They expect their leader to have a view. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and like I said, it's nothing about um, party politics or being partisan. It's just knowing that it's really important to stand up for minority ethnic groups, knowing that it's really, really important to, to stand up for diversity and inclusion. And, you know, frankly, in, in this day and age, if a CEO doesn't stand up for those kind of causes, then, you know, people like myself shouldn't be in our roles. Absolutely. The leaders must go first, mustn't they? Otherwise, yep. why will everyone else, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm following you uh, with interest. Oh, good. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and that comment about your kids, I don't know. I think about that myself. And I think they're going to love what you've done on social media. For example, my, my son Googles me on YouTube. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Occasionally he's like, Mom, I saw you on YouTube today. Like when they're doing their school assignments <laughs> and doing research, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, like there'll son, be this this record of you <laughs> for them to tune into whenever they in. like. Yeah, my son was horrified. He came in one day and he said, Dad, you've got a Wikipedia page. <laughs> I went, oh, I don't know, amazing. Have I? <laughs> 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 I had no idea. He seemed to think it was a big idea. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> And so, and so, what's what's next for for WestJet, or you know, what are you looking forward to? Uh, I would love to know what life looks like the other side of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I have to think relatively short term and say, you know, will we be quick enough to know what the signs of recovery are when they present themselves? How quickly can we take advantage of those? And then mm. how can we steer a course back to a strategy that I still firmly believe in uh, of 
low-cost operations at one end of the market and and premium operations at the uh, ultra long haul and uh, wide-bodied end of the market in our industry. And how can we diversify? Uh, how can we bring a WestJet philosophy potentially to other parts of the industry? Mm. Um, you know, why do we have to narrowly uh, ascribe ourselves within being an airline? What are the service aspects that we can bring to the whole uh, loyalty and reward space? How can we be, be a better financial partner? How can we leverage the privatization that we enjoyed last year to become uh, more joined at the hip with other hospitality and, and service industry providers? Uh, so I see you know, stage one being recovering to be a, a better version of the company that we were before, stage two being diversification, uh, and then stage three at some stage being retirement for me. <laughs> yes. So so not with Jet in its silo, but part of that ecosystem and a, and a true partner. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, I think we provide an extraordinary uh, humanity. And uh, we, you know, our, our core value has always been that we actually care more yes. about all aspects of a guest journey than than any other airline and I think that applies equally if we found ourselves in uh, different spheres in in home entertainment in uh, in the whole events and convention business in the open air um, music industry there is no reason why we could not diversify and share uh, a lot of our core principles uh, outside the aviation sector mm. there's definitely a WestJet vibe I think, like uh, that you pick <laughs> up on when you when you start looking at you know some of the information that's out there on your company, like a like a really positive kind of vibe. So, yeah, yeah people read that. Cruelly described it as a kind of religious cult or people drinking the Kool Aid. It's 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 much deeper seated than anything cosmetic like that. It's a firm yeah. belief that this is our company. You know, until we privatized, eighty six percent of WestJet as were shareholders in the company. And right. even now we're privatized, they still take such a passionate interest yes. in our financial yeah. performance. Um, and that is something that you, you don't find very often. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to find it at Air New Zealand. I was fortunate enough, again, to find that within Airways New Zealand. And, uh, you know, I consider myself very fortunate to be part of building that kind of culture. Mm. And so how can some of our listeners find out more about you? Where's the best place to look? Or? Yeah, probably following me on LinkedIn, actually. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's not difficult to find me on LinkedIn, and that's probably where I am. You know, when I'm outside of the, the work environment, um, that's where I spend most of my time, and that's probably got some of the most accurate summaries of, uh, you know, some of the high and the low spots uh, of my career over the last, well, certainly over the last 20 years. Um, so if... If people are interested, by all means, I'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn and we'll start a conversation. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a great pleasure. I was so excited <laughs> um, in the lead up to, to this and you've just been absolutely fantastic and so much, um, so many good thoughts and tips and you've shared a lot. So I, I really appreciate that. Absolute pleasure, Hilary. Great to see you. Great to see how well Cordia is suiting you as a, as, a, as a working and living environment and uh, congratulations on everything you've done so far and well done on setting this program up. It's a great innovation. <laughs>